Thanks, Casey. All right, uh, this morning we're going to read uh, John 8, 1 through 11 in the ESV version. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, uh, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What do you say? Uh, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once, and at once, sorry, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. You can put that right over there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that you do that teach us about your heart and your way. Lord, as we put ourselves in this scene today, would you reveal yourself to us as we hear your word and sort of unpack the story a little bit? Would you be present? Would you show up among your people this morning? Jesus, we need an encounter with you just like this woman did. Help us as we seek to find you in this story, in this text. Thank you that you're here, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Can you guys imagine what this was like. It's early, early in the morning, so maybe the sun is just cresting the hills, sliding down through the Kidron Valley, and starting to slide through the narrow streets of the old city of Jerusalem. It's probably pretty quiet. The only people up are the merchants who are just starting to get their carts ready to sell. Maybe even some people in the temple court setting up their stalls where people can buy their pigeons, their lambs, their sacrifices, where people can change their foreign currency for the special temple currency that they had to use while they were there. There probably aren't very many voices, but when you go into the temple courts, And you see Solomon's colonnade, these big pillars and these big ancient walls and all these things inscribed all over the walls and the gold leaf art that's happening all over. You maybe pick out a few voices and you notice kind of dotted around this massive courtyard are scribes. 
And they're sitting, which is traditional for the Jewish teachers of the law. They're sitting while all of their students or all of their specific disciples are sort of gathered in a cluster around them. And they sit there and they unpack the law. They say, this is how I interpret the law. And so people have gotten up early in the morning, come into the outer courts of the temple just to find their rabbi to sit at their feet and to listen to them explain the ways of God. And, and as the light is starting to increase and the sun is getting higher in the sky and maybe it's warming up a little bit, you can hear the morning doves and other birds that are starting to make their noise. Um, you see in the corner, maybe sort of out of the way, not really in the center of attention, but there's a, specific, a particularly large group of people seated around one person. And, uh, and as, as you go towards this group of people, you realize that, that this man who's teaching is not dressed as one of the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the other hyper-religious folk. He's actually uh, dressed pretty simply, pretty plainly. Um, he looks like a worker. Like, like, like somebody you might find in some small town who works with their hands all day, day in and day out. And as he's teaching, you notice people are just hanging on his every word. This man is not teaching like the other scribes in the courtyard. He's teaching like one with authority over the text. And then all of a sudden, the sort of quiet, the calm, the, the, the learning atmosphere is disrupted by a commotion coming in through the main gate of the outer courts. And you notice there's, there's some sobbing and shrieking and yelling and grunting and there's a group of men dressed in their regalia, their religious regalia, dragging in a woman. And you notice that she's sobbing and crying out and begging for mercy, and she's actually not wearing a whole lot of clothes. In fact, she's sort of just like wrapped up in a blanket. And uh, they throw her down in front of this man that you're watching teach, and they just sort of stand there. They step back, and they leave the woman crying, whimpering, trying to clutch the blanket around her. And the teacher on the other side, you just kind of wonder, what, what is this? What's going to happen? What is, what is, there's, there's a, suddenly there's an atmosphere. It's gone from very calm and very spiritual to very tense. What's going to happen in this moment? Finally, one of the men who's drugged the woman in, he steps forward and he says, hey, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We had to drag her out of her lover's bed this morning and we brought her here to you. Now in the law, which you're teaching this morning, in the law which you claim to observe, in the law which you have quoted at least four or five times already, part of that law says that women who do this, in this particular context, should be killed. They should be stoned to death. They kind of look back at their compatriots, because this is the moment. Then he asks the teacher, what, what do you say? And see, this is a problem, because this teacher 
is known for having pity and mercy on the broken. But if he denies the law of Moses in the midst of this temple, he's out. His reputation is shot, and they can even actually just drag him out and punish him as well. This is the moment of truth. And you're waiting to hear what he's gonna say. There's a tense pause, and all you really hear are a few far off birds and this woman quietly whimpering in the middle. And all the teacher does is kneel down and start to write in the dust with his finger. What is he writing? Is it a quote from scripture? Is it the words he's about to say? Is it the names of the accusers standing around wanting him to cast judgment on this woman? Whatever he's writing, he doesn't take the bait. So they ask him again, hey teacher, hey, we need an answer. What are we gonna do about this woman who is committing adultery, which we all know is wrong and deserves to be punished? What are you gonna do? And Jesus stands and he says, oh, well, are any of you without sin? Would, would you like to be hauled out like this for any of your sins? It, you know what? If you are without sin, be my guest. Go ahead and start throwing the stones. And he kneels down again and continues to write in the dirt. I can't believe he just talked to them that way. I can't believe like this is how it's going down. And there's another tense, quiet pause. And suddenly, an older gentleman at the back of the group who's drugging this woman kind of just shakes his head and starts to walk off. Pretty soon, seeing that, another one goes, yeah, you know what, this isn't working, I'm out of here. And one by one, they all begin to leave the temple until the youngest ones are left, still ready to just go for it, until they realize, I lost my crew, and also wordlessly leave the temple. And then, of course, the teacher who's been riding in the dirt comes to the woman, looks at her and says, hey, where did your accusers go? Now, this woman has probably not been watching this whole thing. She's probably just been trying to hide, just face cast down, not wanting to look anybody in the eye, not wanting to know what's about to happen to her. So maybe for the first time, she looks up. And as she's asked this question, she looks around and realizes for the first time that her accusers have gone. And Jesus says, has no one condemned you? I guess not. (laughs) And he says, then neither do I. Go now and live a new life without sin without the illicit love of a man who is not your husband, 
You don't need it anymore. Go. You're free. I love this story because it really invites us to put ourselves in the scene and encounter Jesus. You know, we love hearing the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the New Testament writers, and those are good. It's so important to know our theology, to know what Jesus says about this or about that, but we actually can be transformed when we don't limit it just to his teachings, but we begin to inhabit his stories. Jesus shows up, and we encounter him in some of these narratives, and we, like this woman, are radically transformed. Now, if you're curious about this story, you might, you might have a note in your Bible that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this story. So just a quick note about that before we sort of start picking it apart bit by bit, um, is, is that, that that's true. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this story. But this story actually has many, many parallels from texts outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus. And there are other stories like this that, that Jesus, that are confirmed that Jesus did. So this is a very, um, it's very probable, in fact, most scholars, almost every scholar would say that this is almost certainly a thing that happened, but was not necessarily included in some of our earliest, well, the, the earliest versions of the text that we have access to. But um, by the earliest traditions that we have access to, as far as the earliest um, sort of teachings of Jesus and follower, or communities that followed Jesus, this story was treated as gospel. This is a story that, that people read it and went, or heard it and went, yeah, that is Jesus. Jesus did that thing. So, so don't let that note freak you out, okay? This is a Jesus story. This is a thing that Jesus did, and this is something where we can learn from and encounter our Jesus. So Jesus, like it says, early in the morning, he was at the temple. And this is a festival time, so there's lots of people there just to like get their, their uh, regular kind of spiritual fix. They're gonna do all their sacrifices, atone for their sins. They're also just gonna come hear from the teachers, okay? It's kind of like if you were to uh, go back to your hometown, you might go to the church that you grew up in just to like hear that preacher that always just like did it for you, you know? And, and that's sort of the same kind of experience here. They're going to Jerusalem for this festival and they're going, I'm going to go to the temple and hear some real like teachings so that I can take that with me and, and use it for the next several months until the next festival and, and really just uh, make sure my mind is being sharpened by the, the word of God. So these people who are in the temple with Jesus are, are pretty committed folks. They're pretty committed. They want to hear, and rumor, a word has gotten out about Jesus, and so they're coming specifically to hear him going, now who's this guy from, from Galilee? Who's this carpenter dude that apparently is teaching in this whole new way and talking about all these crazy things? I want to hear from him. So Jesus has these people around him, right? And this wouldn't have been uncommon. So far, nothing unusual has happened. But then, of course, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, bring in this woman, now it's clear something fishy is going on. Because while they say, you know, she's caught in the act of adultery, well, the first question we have is, how did you catch her in the act? Is there some sort of entrapment going on here? Was there some sort of like, oh, I'll bet if we set up this scenario, or I'll bet if we follow this person, or I'll bet if we, whatever. And then the other question is, well, the law does prescribe certain things for people caught in the act of adultery, but it has the same punishment for men and women listed. Where's the man? 
Why didn't they bring him? Maybe he just got away. Or maybe these teachers of the law are so misogynistic that they thought, well, really, it was her fault. Let's bring her before the teacher. And there's something else going on here, too, because they know that Jesus has claimed to support the law of Moses. He's claimed to be a true Israelite. He's claimed to be really basing everything on the word of God. And yet he's also been known to be a man who associates with sinners. His accusation, that is the first accusation leveled against him by these Pharisees in the book of Luke is that he is a friend of sinners, which is like a big deal for them. Who is this man, a friend of sinners? So they bring this woman in to entrap him, to see what he might do. And it begs a question that is so valuable, not only for them to ask, but then for us to also start to ask, which is what does Je- how does Jesus deal with sinners? How does Jesus deal with sinners? They set up this context in which they're hoping that they can get him to do something that will give them justification to either exile him or excommunicate him or maybe even kill him. And they're doing it by setting up this scenario that begs the question, how does Jesus deal with sinners? How will he deal with this sinner? And that's why this story matters to us. That's why this story is something that can radically transform us because it makes us ask, how does Jesus deal with sinners? So as we see, Jesus won't take their bait. He kneels down, he begins to write in the dirt. And the text doesn't tell us. There's no way to know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. There's some early interpretations. Um, some of the earliest and wi- most wide, one of the earliest and most widespread interpretations of like what and traditions of what Jesus wrote in this uh, in the dirt here is uh, Isaiah or sorry Jeremiah 17:13. They say that Jesus wrote this text in the dirt. This text is, um, "O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame; those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust." for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So, so people say that this is sort of his accusation against the Pharisees, right? That, that he's writing the words of Jeremiah 17, 13 in the dirt as a way of saying, you have forsaken the Lord, and therefore I will write you in the dust. And some people have gone even further and said what Jesus is doing is writing the names of the Pharisees and next to their name writing a sin that they have committed, like super intense, just like called out in the middle of everybody. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. But if I think about this in a more imaginative way, and I actually like visualize, I use my sanctified imagination to visualize the scene, I, I think the point might be something a little different. If, if the woman is here on our altar rug, and Jesus is over here, you know, he stood up as they brought this woman in and cast her down. And our Pharisees, their gang is like somewhere over here, It's Simon. Simon's the Pharisees. Yeah, got it. It was totally unintentional. I hope you know. Uh, There's sort of this this visual we have of a woman on the ground, some men standing here, one man standing over there. And we get this picture 
of them asking for him, asking Jesus to pass judgment. Will you pass judgment on this woman? And instead of saying a word, he's standing, they're standing, she's on the ground. Instead of saying a word or passing judgment or even challenging their judgment, what does he do? He gets down and he begins to write in the dirt. He changes, he breaks the power dynamic. He says, I will not play this game where you're over there and I'm over here discussing this woman's fate. Here's the problem when we start talking about either a specific sin or sins in general or our particular pet peeve of what the world is doing and the way it's going and how it's all falling apart. Here's the problem is we end up debating side A, side B, there's a person in the middle. There's a person in the middle. And they're usually on the ground, face cast down, wondering if they're just gonna make it through. Jesus refuses to debate. He refuses to make it about an issue to make it about a point of theology or a point of politics or a point of this or that. He refuses to make it about that. He says, I will not play this game because it's not about that. It's about the woman. There's somebody in the middle. And all too often inside the church and outside the church, our debates, our vitriol, our anger, basically everything we see on social media and I was very thoughtful before I said that statement. I really think that's true. Almost everything we see on social media is us arguing about what is right, what is wrong. What's the good life, what's the bad life? I figured it out, have you figured it out? And there's always somebody caught in the middle, always. And it might be as simple as, well, I'm just, I'm not arguing, I'm just living my life and showing off my life the way it is. There's always someone caught in the middle who feels inadequate, who wonders why they can't keep up. And it could be as extreme as political views. I'm just saying what I believe. Okay, there's also always someone caught in the middle. Jesus is a master, not only of theology, but he's, he's, he's a pastor. He calls himself the good shepherd. He never loses sight of the people in the center of the issue. So physically, he just gets down. He's with the woman. And when I think about that, I think, how does Jesus deal with sinners? I'm like, okay. So when I'm debating or talking about a point of sin or saying, man, the world is this way and it should be this way, and when I'm going back and forth, when I'm like uh, lamenting this or that sin that I see, the, Jesus, where is he? He's with the person in the middle. He's, he's right there with them. And if I want to encounter Jesus, I have to get close and down in the dirt with the sinner. I have to. How does Jesus deal with sinners? He gets down in the dirt with them. This, my friends, um, does not mean that Jesus doesn't care that this woman is caught in adultery. What are his last words to her? Go and sin no more. Which is really interesting because Jesus has to do this radical act of acceptance and forgiveness before he says those words. Jesus does a radical act 
of acceptance and forgiveness before he says, stop sinning. I almost always start with, just, just stop. Just stop. Do, do you see why what you're doing is hurting you? Just stop. Jesus does a radical act where he doesn't even address what's going on. He doesn't even take the sin head on. He just gets down in the dirt with the woman and he lovingly defends her from everyone who would, everyone who would accuse her. Were the Pharisees wrong? Technically, no. But they would accuse her. And so Jesus stops their mouths and sends them away. And once all of that is done, then we can have a conversation. Then we can talk about behavior. Then we can start to say, hey, you know what? There's actually a different way to live. And this is brilliant of Jesus because he knows how human beings are wired. And he knows what will work and what won't work. The threat of stoning was there all the time. It was in the law. Ever since this woman was born, she grew up knowing that if I do this thing, this other thing could happen. The threat didn't work. She still did the thing. And we don't know why, right? We don't know what drove her to it, but the threat didn't work. And so Jesus knows something else, some other tactic has to be done in order to rescue the sinner, not just from their condemnation, but to rescue the sinner from their sin. Jesus wants to rescue the sinner from accusation and condemnation and then rescue the sinner from the sin. I grew up in the church and I'm really grateful for it. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't know Jesus if I didn't, I don't think. I don't think I would have found Jesus on my own. I was re I'm really grateful that, like, that was, like, Jesus was just part of the air I breathed. Um, yeah, I grew up in the church and I'm, I'm grateful, but I will say this. The way I learned to deal with sin can sort of be summed up in one word. And this is from, from the church, but it's also from American culture. This is like across the board. The way I learned to deal with sin, if summed up in one word, the word would be pressure. Apply pressure. Personal pressure internally, just stop it. Just figure it out. Just don't be so stupid. Come on. And societal pressure, oh, you don't want to be the guy that does that. Social pressure, other people being like, oh wow, I don't want them to think I'm weird, so I better just like figure this out. Do pressure. And then the strongest pressure of all was spiritual pressure. I was taught that, you know, Jesus above all else wants you to be a good boy, wants you to be a good Christian. I go, okay, 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 come on, come on, come on. Oh God, I'm letting you down, I'm so sorry, I'm trying, I'm trying. Pressure, 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 pressure. And in this scene, does Jesus apply any pressure? Not really. <laughs> like a little bit to the Pharisees, a little bit, right? There's, there's sort of a pressure they're calling out of like, oh, wow, okay. Don't know if I actually have the right to do this. I better go. But does he apply pressure? No. He rescues. He's down in the dirt with. He forgives he accepts, and then he just very simply says, so now go, don't sin. Because Jesus, I think, knows that we can never ever bully ourselves into holiness. We can never be bullied by others into holiness. 
Pressure does not work. And it's not even just a holiness question, it's a human being question. If we try this, we see this in the broader culture all the time. This is how, we've, this is how uh, we still do things in our education system. We try to pressure and bully and just get this kid to learn the thing. And then when they get, learn the thing, we're gonna give them an A. But if they don't, watch out, you're gonna get the F and your parents are gonna get the report card and yikes, it's pressure. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying we need to change everything. I'm just saying that's the milieu we all grew up in. That's what we all know. We, we think that good behavior comes as a result of pressure. Now, is there an appropriate place for pressure? Sure. But in this moment of brokenness and when we're confronted face to face with sin, Jesus doesn't seem interested in applying pressure. He seems interested in applying grace. He seems interested in applying freedom. I think he knows that pressure wouldn't do a thing for this woman. It hadn't yet. It wouldn't do a thing for this woman. What would? Well, getting down in the dirt, forgiving, accepting, and then very gently and calmly just saying, now you don't have to do this anymore. When Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin, it kind of gives us some echoes in our minds of like, oh, I've heard Jesus say things like that before. Not those exact words, but things like that. To me, it reminds me of the times when he tells a paralyzed man more than once, get up, pick up your mat, and go. Jesus is performing a moment of healing here. He's freeing this woman not only from the guilt of her sin, but from the undying need to go back to that sin. He's giving her a way out. I don't know why she went to the arms of her illicit lover. It could have been uh, just a one-time thing. It could have been a pattern. It's very possible she was a woman who never was able to actually like get, never feel worthy, never feel loved, never feel beautiful, never know that she is precious. And, and so it drove her into this lifestyle. And maybe even if it was a one-time thing, you know, if there's a deficit in your heart, it can be really easy to try to fill it with the first thing that's offered. Jesus is going to the root of the problem and saying there's something broken in this woman's heart. And condemnation and pressure is not going to solve it. But let me ask you this, he says. Is anyone condemning you? She says, no one. He says, then neither do I condemn you. How does Jesus deal with sinners? He befriends them. He befriends them, right? This is what he was accused of in the Gospel of Luke, being a friend of sinners, which is great news for us because it means I always qualify. I always qualify to be Jesus' friend. Awesome. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He befriends sinners because Jesus knows this very real thing, which is that we cannot change the thing that we despise. We cannot change the thing that we despise. That might be the most controversial thing I say this morning. Uh, we cannot change the thing that we despise. What I mean is the Pharisees despise the woman. They have no hope for changing her, only for killing her. 
The woman, I mean, in that moment, probably despises the Pharisees, but she's not about to change this system that's happening, right? And this whole dynamic gets played out in churches, in cultures, on social media, all the time. And also, this whole dynamic gets played out inside each one of us every day. Every day, every day, every day. How many times do I make a mistake, do that thing again, really let somebody down. And I, get, I can get so ashamed of, of what I've done that like when I think about it, I, I sense my brain just like trying desperately to think of anything else. I'm like, ah, right? Like, no, I can't think about that, right? Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll get so ashamed of what I've done that I'll just, oh, I'm so stupid. Why was I such an idiot? And I'll catch myself talking to myself this way. Basically, I'll catch myself being the Pharisee, throwing myself down in front of Jesus. But the truth is, sinners don't change that way. How do sinners change? Well, we just saw. Jesus gets down in the dirt, he befriends the sinner, and gives them the power to change. So if this dynamic is playing out inside of me, what, what do I do? Well, I might, I might have that moment, that knee-jerk reaction, that fallen human instinct to just cast myself down before Jesus. This guy's an idiot, look what he did, he's so stupid, he's garbage, he's a worm. And when I find myself on the ground before Jesus and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Do I sound like Jesus right now? Or do I sound like the Pharisees? Okay, okay. Jesus, I want to invite you to befriend the sinner in me. I want to invite you to come and embrace, to get down in the dirt and befriend this sinner. To love even this part of me. And what I find as I do that over and over and over and over and over over time is that that sinful part of me is actually given freedom and space to do better, to change. Um, I talked to this Catholic priest once, amazing man, and he was talking about how when he was younger, he, uh, he, his friends, a few friends kind of shared with him, he was like, they were like, hey, we just noticed that you're pretty selfish. <laughs> like you're always talking about yourself, you never like help other people out, you're pretty selfish. Can you imagine being told that by your friends? Ouch. <laughs> So he's like, he was like, you're right, you're right. He was like, I, my, all my friends are saying this and it's true. So he's like, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna think about others, I'm gonna, da, da, da. but he kept finding himself, like somebody would say something and he'd be like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this thing about me, da, 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 right? Or he kept finding himself uh, coming up with excuses not to go help with the thing they needed help with, or oh, he kept coming up with excuses why, but well, maybe, you know, I know that they've paid for dinner every time, but maybe I'll just let them do it one more time, like these sorts of things. And he could not change. And he told me, he goes, I, I, I was desperate. I was like, I was praying every day. I was going to confession. I was like, why can't I change? And he said that one day, one of his friends came up to him and he said, you know what? Don't change. Just don't change. I want you to know that we're, I'm your friend. It doesn't matter if you change. Stop, stop crucifying yourself. I'm just your friend. I'll be your friend. And this man was kind of like shocked by this. Right? Whoa, why would you say that? Like, are you really letting me off the hook? Yikes. 
But I think his friend uh, actually maybe knew what he was doing, or maybe he didn't, I don't know, but it seems to be a pretty brilliant response because this, this priest I was talking to said, once the pressure was taken off where I had to change in order to be accepted and loved, I found I was able to change. <laughs> because see, what this woman was experiencing was, I have to be different. As I am, I cannot be loved. As I am, I cannot be accepted. You know what that does? It drives us back into the arms of our adulterous lover every single time. Jesus said, whether you change or not, I'm here, I love you, I'm your friend. In the words of Isaiah 54, with enormous compassion, I will gather you to me. Isaiah 54, if you don't know it, is a context of judgment. God saying, you really messed up. You treated me like a husband that you went and cheated on. And he says, with enormous compassion, I will gather you up. That's what Jesus does to this woman, and she, says, she finds out that in that place, she can be loved, and therefore, maybe she doesn't have to return to the adulterous lover. Maybe there's a possibility for a new way of being. How does Jesus deal with sinners? With embrace. He embraces them. For me, this has been really transformational. Even just recognizing, Ben, you can't change what you hate. I can't change what I hate. And to just bring the sinner, the adulterer, the really broken, shameful person to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is a version of me we don't talk about much because I think he's just too gross. But would you befriend him? Would you get down in the dirt with him? Would you embrace him? And over time, I find sin patterns and temptations that I never, ever thought I could change beginning to be loved into healing by Jesus. See, Jesus cares about our behavior but he knows that just pressuring and telling us to change doesn't do it. He has to meet us in the dirt. He has to meet us in the shame. He has to meet us in the aftermath of sin and befriend us there before we ever find the strength with his help to change. Y'all, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus meets this woman in the dirt. And in a few days time from this story, he will take the punishment she deserves from the hands of those same Pharisees. They wanted to kill her, they'll end up killing him. Jesus befriends the sinner all the way to the cross. And that would be so good if it ended there, but it doesn't, because Jesus says, go and sin no more. That's the resurrection. The shame, the condemnation, it's all taken care of, and there's hope for new life. There's hope to change. 
That's what we're celebrating this weekend. That's why Casey made those awesome invites with that awesome magnet that's going directly on my fridge. I'm like, how do we get every, guys, can I tell you something? I had a dream last night, this is real. I had a dream last night that this building was completely packed with people on Easter Sunday, like completely packed, like people sitting in this aisleways, totally packed. And I, in this dream, I turned to Simon, I said, hey, do you think this is our new normal? And he was like, yeah, yeah, maybe. And then Simon did like a, like a do you want to trust in Jesus moment? And there were people just like standing up and like crying out and the spirit was moving and they were just like, yes, I need to know Jesus. How, what must I do to be saved? This was my dream last night. Not even kidding. And uh, I was like, what did I eat before I went to bed? I don't know. But, but as I'm up here talking, I'm like, well, of course that was because the gospel is that good. The gospel is that good. If we, if we communicate it as Jesus demonstrates it here, and if we live this way towards one another and even towards ourselves, the gospel is that good. Our world is absolutely living in this power play of condemnation and shame and calling out. If we were to communicate, to live, to actually embody the gospel that is revealed in John chapter eight, this place would be packed full of people. And it's, fi- it's fine that it's not, it's, we, I love you all, this is so great, but I'm just like, how could people not desperately come running towards this Jesus, this gospel where he befriends the sinner all the way to the cross and then rises from the dead to create a possibility for new life? How could we not, how could that not go viral? That's what I wanna know. How could that not go viral? So, <laughs> Take your invitations. Go, go live the gospel. Go tell somebody, hey, like, this, this is for you. Th- this Easter thing, I know you think it's weird. This is for you. Come join us. Come hear about the Jesus maybe you thought you knew but actually never really got to know. Come join us. I want people to meet this Jesus as the woman caught in adultery did. But first we have to meet him ourselves. We're gonna do communion in a moment, and um, what a great time to do communion. Jesus poured out his blood and broke his body so that this kind of gospel, this kind of transformation was possible, is possible. If you are carrying a sin, a guilt, a shame, a temptation that won't seem to go away, As we take communion and we receive the blood of Christ poured out for us, the body of Christ broken for us, can you allow Jesus to get down in the dirt with that sinner in you and befriend that sinful place in you, to apply his love even there and experience the possibility of a new life, of a new way as we take the bread and the juice. If you're not a believer in Jesus, no worries. This is just something we do uh, as believers in Jesus. We take these elements because Jesus told us to, and we do it to remember that there is a way, that he's made a way with his body and his blood. So in a moment, we're going to do that. We've got gluten-free station over here and another table over here. You can come up and grab. Um, And if you want prayer, if there's something on your heart that you want prayer for, if um, this story brings something up for you, uh, a member of our pastoral care team will be in the balcony 
and you can go pray and receive prayer up there. Um, let me pray for us, and then the tables will be open. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, <laughs> I always forget, I always forget the way you deal with sinners. It's always so much better and more helpful than what I assume. Thank you for this reminder this morning, Lord. Thank you that, um, that my worst instincts about you are just not true. Jesus, I receive again your presence in my brokenness. I confess to you, I confess to you the places where the sinner in me is alive and well. Would you get down in the dirt with him now? Would you befriend him? And would you give him the possibility of change? We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your body and your blood poured out for us, broken for us. We receive your grace and forgiveness. And we trust that new life is possible in you. Jesus, would you bring people to the church this week through the Stations of the Cross, through Good Friday, through our Easter service? Would you bring people here who need to experience this gospel? Apply it to us now. We trust you, Jesus. We're grateful in your name. Amen. The tables are open.